I said I don't have trouble Sleeping Too much trouble Worrying I gotta think This is hell. Live from a studio above a bar, this is hell. Limbo edition. That's right, this is Board Op Dan. We're still in limbo because Chuck is laid up. There is wonderful news on that front. I heard that uh, Chuck was entering Alex's show yesterday. He shared some news. Great to hear him back on the mic. He let us know that our his first live show with a new guest will be May 16th, and that if all goes according to plan, we'll have an entire week of all live shows, May 23rd, with Chuck hosting Back to Normal. That's outstanding. He also let us know that the uh, listener appreciation party has been moved once again, this time to September 17th, the last day of summer. So it's not happening in July anymore, it's happening in September. That's outstanding. Okay, but uh, until Chuck is back in the studio, we are in limbo, and that's where the board ops are playing all our favorite hits from the vaults, some classic interviews. We also have uh, questions from hell, horrible histories, or rather rotten histories with Ronaldo Magaldi, and moments of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Speaking of questions from hell, this week's question from hell is, what did Chuck miss during his two-month absence? He's been gone two months. What did he miss? So go on over to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and give your answer to the question from hell, and you got a shot at winning some merch. All right. From the vaults this week, I chose an interview from 2019 with Ginny Brown. Uh, Chuck was talking to Ginny Brown about the history of access to abortion. The, there was a sad chapter of that written just last week. As you probably know, it was leaked that the Supreme Court is planning to overthrow Roe v. Wade, which is deeply insane. So we're going to learn about the history of that, and get a little bit of access, uh, get a little bit of background into how this could have happened. If you want to, go on over to abortionfunds.org and um, donate some money to help people secure safe abortions, as is their right in any sane world. Go to abortionfunds.org. And they've got a button where you can donate to help them out. All right. So we're going to go back to 2019 now with Chuck talking to Ginny Brown about the history of access to abortions. This is hell. Reform of abortion laws failed. Framing abortion as an issue of privacy or choice was a huge mistake, leading to a legal ruling protecting abortions rights that is weak and vulnerable to limiting a woman's access to abortion. Here to explain what went wrong in the struggle to repeal all abortion laws and what we can do to get back to a focus on repeal instead of reform, we truly have the honor of speaking with writer, teacher, and organizer with the feminist organization, 
National Women's Liberation Jenny Brown is author of a new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jenny. Thanks. Good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Jenny was a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter here in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. You can follow Jenny on Twitter at Jenny Brown LN, and you can learn all about National Women's Liberation by following Four Women's Lib. That's the number Four Women's Lib on Twitter, and or going to their website womensliberation.org. You start by writing the first shot in the feminist abortion wars was fired in 1969 in New York City Health. Department Auditorium, where a panel of male psychologists, doctors, clergy, and lawyers, and one woman, a sister, Mary Patricia, debated exceptions to New York's law forbidding abortion. They were discussing whether a woman should be allowed to have an abortion if her health was in danger, or if she had been raped, or if she had already given birth to four children. Who started the abortion wars and why? That is, were abortions either becoming increasingly accessible and that was seen as a threat to opponents or were they becoming increasingly limited and those who supported women had had enough and started fighting back? What was the trajectory of the right to an abortion when the current abortion wars that you date to 1969 started? So basically, abortion was legal for the first hundred years of the country, um, and then it was made illegal in 1873, and then we had another hundred years of illegal abortion, but there were ups and downs, and in the post-war period, um, post-World War II period, there were um, there was a big crackdown on, on doctors who had pretty much been practicing openly in many cases. You know, you could if you knew somebody who knew somebody, you could get actual an actual physician to do the abortion. There were a lot of crackdowns in the 50s and 60s. Uh, simultaneously, there was a large generation of, of women trying to get abortions. And so that led to, I think, a lot of the of the conflicts. Um, but through the 50s and 60s, what we had was a sort of a movement of professionals, doctors and lawyers who doctors, especially who had seen the carnage created by an underground abortion um, system where there were there were no checks and balances. There was no um, guarantee that what you were uh, the person that was doing the abortion was using sanitary procedures. And it led to a lot of deaths and a lot of uh, sterilizations by mistake. And it led to a lot of sickness and wards full of people um, who had uh, had incomplete abortions or difficult or were infected from their abortions. So. So, you know, they, there was a sort of a humanitarian movement to change the system, and they focused on changing the laws to, um, you know, these kinds of exceptions that you mentioned, rape, incest, life of the mother. Um, the the difference between that and the feminist abortion movement is that the women's liberation movement came along in 1968 and started doing consciousness raising, and one of the things that they learned from talking to each other about their experiences was that they had all had abortions or had had uh, pregnancy scares, um, and they had had illegal abortions and not told anybody about them. Um, and they also saw that the uh, the reforms that were being suggested wouldn't do a thing to help them. They were uh, they wanted abortions because they didn't want to have a child at the time. The main reason that everybody who gets an abortion gets one. So. Um, so they decided to actually break up the reform hearings, which were talking about loosening the laws, um, on the basis that it was just going to be more pain and humiliation for women to have these laws continue to be tinkered with, and they demanded repeal of all abortion laws. 
Uh, and that was the that was the political demand that eventually got us Roe. First, it got us um, abortion on demand in New York State. It sounds like they were reacting to a public, a serious, serious public health crisis that had occurred between the time of 1873 when you know abortion had been legal up till then until the area the era that you were talking about what explains you because this is something i've never really understood because of my family's history with uh, women health services what explains why that has been forgotten that public health crisis the horrors of what happened between 1873 and roe v wade what explains why that crisis and those awful things that were going on what explains why those have been forgotten well partly it's the anti-abortion movement uh tries to put the focus on on embryos and fetuses and stop talking about women so that so very much uh, people have been focused on that um, and the media goes along with it. Um, so so we often don't hear about the the disastrous uh, health results of having an, an abortion underground. Um, but I think it's also important to say that it was the positive um, the positive vision of uh, people getting full control of their reproduction that really animated the movement in the late sixty s and early seventies. You know, we had a lot, it was in the middle of the Vietnam War, there was a lot of carnage. A lot of people were dying for a lot of reasons. Um, but to have a, like the sense that we could have dignity and, and a positive um, positive experience with, with our reproductive health, that was a vision that people were really willing to unite around. And the idea was that you would get abortion completely out of the criminal code. Why is it in the penal code to begin with? Um, why is the results of a pregnancy, um, even a question that that courts and police have anything to do with, um, and give give people back their dignity on on uh, deciding the course of their lives when it came to reproductive decisions. So that was really the vision, I think, and that's we need to get back to that. I was really excited when I read in your book how you write about the, uh, and I, I'm just going to get back to this one more time, uh, the 100 years when abortion was legal in the United States up until uh, 1873. So the framers of the Constitution were fine with abortion. So I imagine, and I'm pretty sure you'll be pretty, you'll be very happy about this, Jenny, that now that we have these constitutional originalists on the Supreme Court, like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, they're all going to be about, you know, making abortion completely legal, right? Because that would be originalism, right? Yes, it would be originalism, but of course they're not going to do that. Um, they, they, uh, the founders took over the um, the common law in in England completely. And that basically said that up until quickening, which is in about a four-month pregnancy, when you can feel the fetus move, um, abortion was completely legal. And because they didn't really have a good sense of, uh, they didn't have good pregnancy tests, um, they they weren't really sure, you know, was it a pregnancy? Was it just a blocked period? There was a lot of confusion scientifically about what was going on. But in general, it was um, the laws that... Uh, well, the laws against abortion only applied to after quickening. And then since that was uh, based on the woman's report, you can say that abortion was essentially legal um, from the country's founding until until the 1860s. Now, in the 1850s and 60s, doctors were the ones who started to try to make it illegal. And the reason they wanted to do that was that their their main competition was 
midwives and um, sort of all-purpose uh, family doctors who were not part of the medical profession, but much more traditional healers who did abortions and they did births and they did all of these things that people relied on. Um, but they weren't part of this new profession. Um, and it was also a uh, male-dominated profession trying to eliminate a female-dominated profession. Um, and so they thought uh, making abortion illegal was one way to do that. They also wanted to put uh, abortion on a more scientific basis, the idea of, of reproduction. They felt that, you know, there wasn't any bright line between, you know, with some scientific justification between uh, a fetus that you could feel move and one that you couldn't feel move. Um, so they tried to get the clergy. They tried to get the newspapers. They tried to get everybody to be against abortion. And they had a very hard time. Um, the clergy didn't want to annoy their congregations, uh, and they also took ads from from uh, abortion providers. And newspapers didn't want to give up their uh, really lucrative um, advertising in uh, for abortion and and abortifacient pills, which were very common. And you know, there was a there was a very famous uh, abortion provider on Fifth Avenue in New York. Um, you know, she spent she spent sixty thousand dollars a year on on advertising in those 60,000 in those days. Um, so, so it was, it was very much an industry and they wanted to put it out of business. Um, it wasn't until after the civil war that they really got some traction. And one of the reasons they got traction was that women, married women were controlling the size of their families through abortion. Um, and that meant that, uh, they were very concerned that, uh, native born Protestant women were having fewer children, whereas these, um, you know, as they thought of it, the hordes of Catholics who were who were immigrants who were having more children, um, and so they were very worried about about the, uh, you know, the the balance between religions and and what we would think of as as basically a, uh, an an ethnic or racial uh, conflict. But it was it was framed, in, you know, that the Irish and the Italians were the ones who were having having too many babies. So. Um, and we can hear echoes of that now in some of the rhetoric from Republican politicians talking about, you know, how, uh, you know, these uh, sort of racist view that we we can't, quote unquote, uh, rebuild our civilization based on someone else's babies, unquote. Um, and that's uh, from Iowa Representative Steve King. Um, a tweet from him. So, so you can see that some of these same uh, same issues are coming back again. Um, and uh, they managed to get laws in the 1860s in various states, and then in 1873, the Comstock Law um, prohibited all birth control, sex information, sex education, and and uh, of course abortion um, throughout the country. So that was when when the uh, great really came down. So the very American triumvirate of patriarchy, capitalism, and racism led to the more making abortion illegal. That's great. You can always uh, always uh, depend on them for really screwing something up. So for the next right. century after uh, 1873, there would be illegal abortions. And what I was mentioning earlier, my grandmother worked at a shelter in downtown Detroit beginning in the 1920s that housed abused wives and assisted them in getting access to abortion. I remember my mother telling me that if they couldn't get an abortion, they'd end up visiting what she called angels of death. And they would get uh, what she would describe as 
back alley abortions, which as a kid I took literally, and I'm still uncertain of how literal they were being. Every description they had of it was horrifying to me. So I was raised with this idea that while abortion was necessary, women should be allowed to have them without any legal obstacle. I also grew up still having a very negative connotation of abortions as a desperate last resort. What is the impact of that century of illegal abortion on the abortion debate today? Did making abortion a crime change the ways and how did making abortion change the ways uh, that Americans viewed abortion when they changed it to being a crime? Well, I think a lot of women, uh, and and this became clear in the 60s when people started talking about their abortions, a lot of women had abortions anyway. And in fact, the um, the about, about a third of women, a third to a quarter of women throughout U.S. history have, have had an abortion. So um, that means that, uh, you know, we know a lot of people. There are a lot of people in our families. Um, go back in your family tree. Think about how many people have probably had an abortion. Um, so I think, you know, while there while there was all this shame and secrecy around it, because, of course, it was illegal and you could be um, you could be arrested for for uh, even knowing about an abortion. You could be interrogated. They could try to force you to name name the person who was providing the abortion. All of these things meant that people were very ashamed and 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 didn't want to talk about it. Um, it was very much a real part of everyone's lives, um, you know, because it's not just the women. It's also the other members of the family who maybe, uh, you know, wanted to control their reproduction, too. So um, so I think I think it just uh, it just put it underground in both in our thinking about it and in in um, in the law. So, you know, it took a lot of making it public again in the 60s to really um, to really break through that. And one of the things that we've kind of gone backwards on is because the Supreme Court sort of grasped at this idea of privacy in order to um, basically to respond to the the mass movement that was in the streets demanding abortion. Um, they, uh, you know, a lot of uh, people who are for abortion rights talk about how important privacy is. And I think that that is actually sort of going the opposite direction of where we need to go. We need to be making it more public, like the group Shout Your Abortion has been doing. We need to be talking about it as a normal thing rather than feeling that stigma and and sort of feeding that shame and stigma by feeling that we can't speak about it. So, um, so privacy and stigma is always aimed at trying to keep us from talking to each other about what's going on. And, and so we need to break through that. And that's, that's one of the, one of the things that really won us the advances on abortion that we got in the seventies. I want to ask you a few really, really, really basic questions that you address in the first chapter of your book. What happens during an abortion that you do not think is commonly understood, even misunderstood, leading to poor decisions by citizens when it comes to how they make any decisions towards policy on abortion laws? What do you think is so mis- is the most, not necessarily the most, but what do you think is commonly misunderstood that would help people make better decisions if they really knew what takes place during an abortion? Well, I've, one of the things is that a lot of the anti-abortion propaganda focuses on these giant fetuses, um, giant bloody fetus posters. And so a friend of mine who went to uh, high school in South Dakota said that there were the giant bloody fetus posters outside of her high school every day she walked outside her high school. 
And so she said, well, I thought abortion would be, it would be this big bloody fetus that you would see, um, you know, and she had real sex ed, but, uh, but there, there's still this idea that it's a very complicated thing. There's this giant fetus, it's all this stuff. So, um, so the thing is that before 12 weeks, um, the, the embryo or fetus, it changes from embryo to fetus at eight weeks, is, is, is basically extremely small. You can barely see it if it's, if it's before eight weeks. Um, it's also an extremely simple, safe operation. It takes five minutes. Um, basically, what your practitioner does is they introduce a, a drinking straw-like um, suction device into your uh, uterus and then um, suck the contents of your uterus out. Um, it's, it's very simple. It's quite expensive in this country, partly because it's so, uh, there are so many laws regulating, uh, abortion providers that they, you know, they, and they also need all of these security measures. So every time you put a restriction or something else, you're adding to the price and difficulty getting abortions. Um, but it's, but it's a very simple procedure, and it's a very common procedure. Um, as I said, uh, between one in three and one in four women have gotten abortions throughout our history. But also, um, right now, it's it's you know thirty percent of of women have gotten abortions. So it it you know to think of it as like this very special emergency, it's just it just doesn't match the reality. And I think. Because there's so much drama around the debate, um, people think it must be a very dramatic uh, decision and a very dramatic experience. And certainly it's it's great when you are pregnant and you don't want to be to not be pregnant. But, um, but it's not a particularly dramatic experience and it's not a particularly dramatic procedure. Um, and it's something that uh, everybody needs to have access to. I mean, the main problem in the United States, of course, is that we don't have a national health care system. So you're paying out of pocket almost certainly for your abortion. And the average cost is five hundred and thirty dollars, which is really hard to come up with for most people. So um, that's that's the main obstacle. Um, the main obstacle is not, you know, that it's a difficult procedure or that you might uh, experience adverse health uh, consequences. That's extremely unlikely. Um, there are a lot of other procedures that are much more dangerous that we we get a lot of, and it just um, I think that just getting rid of some of the hysteria around it is really important. And I, you know, reflexively up until I would say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I uh, first spoke with Jennifer Baumgartner, author of Manifesta, I immediately uh, deferred to. A sense of sympathy and sensitivity toward women who had gone through abortions, but I now I know and I realize after talking to Jennifer, that is putting you know while I you know maybe my heart was in the right place, it certainly wasn't because that puts the woman who has had an abortion into the position of being a victim. What's wrong with seeing a woman as a victim of an abortion? Yeah, I mean, this is something that the right wing says all the time when they t when they're trying to say, oh well, it's not the it's not the women who are getting abortions; it's these terrible doctors that are inflicting them on them. Well, the women that are getting abortions want the abortions, and therefore, getting having a good skilled doctor to do it is is you know a wonderful thing. Um, and you know, we're uh, 
you could even argue that abortion is taking control of your life. Um, so it's it's really not um, anything to be worried about. I mean, you know, do we say we're do we say we're a victim of a tonsillectomy or, um, you know, it's it's just a very common procedure. And um, of course, there are a lot of feelings around abortion and people who wanted to have a kid but decided for various reasons like. They didn't think their partner would hold up, that they thought they didn't have enough money to raise a child, the child care situation or their health care situation was too difficult. Those folks who want to have a child but then had to get an abortion because they thought it was just too hard, obviously you're going to have feelings about of, of anger and, and grief around that. But that's not because of the abortion. That's because of our terrible child rearing system in the United States, which doesn't provide the things that parents need to raise their kids. And just for starters, um, you know, national health care, which is provided to virtually everybody um, in uh, in other countries, but we apparently can't have that here because we have to fund a giant uh, for-profit insurance system, a child care system where people can can uh, put their kids and the and the workers are are paid adequately and the um, and it's safe. Um, uh, and frankly, paid leave, which we have no paid leave in this country. A couple of states have put it through, but nationally we have no paid leave system. Um, so it's completely up to your employer. And most people have to go back to work after having a baby after three or four weeks. So um, so th those kind of conditions, of course, it's difficult to have a child. And of course, you would have to make those decisions um, and and feel justifiably angry and bad about having to make them. Um, but that's not to do with the abortion. That's to do with the system. Is there, well, not is, at least to me, there seems to be a liberal sense that abortion is something that people have who simply do not have access to birth control and a good sex education program, because that implies it is mostly the poor who cannot afford contraception or it is not easily accessible and the uneducation, which again comes back to the poor for not having adequate educational funding or resources. Are abortions more than anything the outcome of poverty and poor education? Well, I mean, obviously it costs a lot to get effective contraception and often to, to come up with a system that you really like that doesn't have a lot of side effects, you often have to go back to, the, to your provider again and again. So, so this is and and you know we all think that na a national healthcare system that covers all of that is the answer to that. But a lot of people, their contraceptive fails. It doesn't matter how much money you have, um, your contraception can still fail. Um, and you know every contraceptive method, including sterilization, has a failure rate. So um, you know if if your contraceptive method is is ninety seven percent effective, that means that out of a hundred couples that are using it three are going to have a pregnancy every year. So that's a lot of people once you start adding it up. Um, so I think, obviously, we need to have, uh, we, we, we want adequate contraception, good contraception. We also need contraception that guys can use. Um, there needs to be research on that. Uh, um, it's just, uh, but that's not the issue with abortion because it all has a failure rate. And you might, just end up not using contraception. I mean, I certainly have done that in my life. I don't think there are very many people uh, who haven't. Um, you know, it's just a matter of 
how life is sometimes. So I, th- I think I, I think that when we focus on contraception, we're just sort of um, making it sound like it's it's people who get pregnant's fault for not being adequately careful. And, you know, we we all should be these good girls who are very, very careful with our with our contraception. Um the other thing is, you know, I mean, guys have a role in this. Um, every pregnancy that's not a <laughs> condom failure is, you know, is is a, a guy is responsible. So, um, you know, we also need to need to remember that. And I think, um, you know, guys should be a lot more open to uh, to using contraception than they are. Um, that's that's the other part of it that that is sometimes, uh, uh, you know, it's all on the woman. Right. Um, wait, her sexual, her sexual experiences and her sexual activities are, are always under the microscope, but guys kind of get a free pass. You know, that's a, it's, that's a fascinating thought just because I was thinking about the t-shirts that came out a while ago that said, I had an abortion. And, uh, as you were pointing out the speak outs that happened back in 1969 and 1970 and, uh, women sharing their experiences of having abortions and how much that can move the cause of abortion law repeal forward. To what extent do you think there would be a good contribution by men if they wore T-shirts saying that I had an abortion? In other words, I was the person involved in that abortion, or is this a place that men shouldn't be involved? <laughs> I I don't think that would quite work, but certainly, <laughs> but you, you, you know, you're on, you know I, what I mean. I I paid for an abortion might be might be better. <laughs> yes, definitely. Or I paid for half an abortion. I think that would probably be more better, more for men. I mean, I mean, part of it is that birth control is is primarily looked at as women's responsibility. And so and and because we bear the brunt of the results, we tend to be the ones who are paying for it. It's very expensive. So like guys should be guys should be at least sharing half, maybe taking all of it just, you know, because it's the wear and tear on our bodies that uh, uh, and and I we should also say that, you know, some people who don't identify as women um also need abortions. So abortions for are for anybody who can get pregnant. Right. right. Maybe it should be uh, I went Dutch on an abortion or something like that. Uh, Jenny, so uh, how much has healthcare profiteering become an obstacle to having access to an abortion? How far could you mentioned it already, but how far could either the uh, public option or Medicare for all or universal health care coverage, how far could that go towards giving women access to an abortion? After all, we're still going to have the same politicians in place, and I could see how they would be, all right, we can have universal health care, but it doesn't cover abortion. Yeah, and in fact, that was the situation, um, sort of, there was the 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 half, uh, the, the um, I, I guess I can't exactly say that on the air, but anyway, the the um, not very good uh, uh, Clinton healthcare plan that was that was planned in the '90s, um, they immediately jettisoned abortion out of that plan, and that was the the um, impetus for creating uh, this movement around reproductive justice. The term reproductive justice was coined at a conference where women of African descent were discussing this jettisoning of abortion from the from the Clinton healthcare plan and they um they formed up a group and they uh placed an ad um it was signed by over 900 uh black women saying you know we are not going to support a, a healthcare system that doesn't take into account our needs on on reproductive health including abortion um and so uh 
you know, it's it's not a surprise that that black women would be in the vanguard on this because, uh, you know, we have not only experienced um, in the United States uh, a lot of forcing people to have kids. We've also experienced um, uh, especially women of color and poor women have experienced forced sterilization. So um, that whole the the whole idea of reproductive justice is that you need the right to not have kids when you don't want them to have kids when you do want them and to be able to raise your kids in healthy and humane conditions. So, um, we, you know, we can't divide up those, those things. Um, you know, the way that we need to get, I think the, the way that we should fight for, uh, for abortion, full abortion rights is it should be included in a national healthcare system. Um, and that would include, include contraception, um, and all the different forms forms of contraception, including the ones that the right wing claims cause abortions, like the morning after pill and the IUD. Um, the thing is that we've been fighting for 40 years against the Hyde Amendment, which prevents uh, women on Medicaid from getting abortions in, in most states. And, um, you know, that will, even if we win that, that will only cover people who get Medicaid. There are a lot of folks who don't get Medicaid that also need abortions and can't afford them. Um, so really, we need it to be covered through a national health system that covers everybody. And that would go a long way towards uh, getting us the kind of reproductive rights that that we have wanted from the start. You know, in Europe, when they won abortion rights in the early 70s, it was simply included in their national health system. And so people had um, had free abortions. Um, and of course, the socialist world was way ahead of that. Um, you know, when East Germany and West Germany uh, combined, East German women had uh, full rights to abortion and West German women had very restricted rights to abortion. And then they sort of split the difference. Um, but they, they were free, free through a national health system. That's what we need. That reminds me, and thank you for reminding me, uh, that uh, Henry Hyde was a dick. Uh, what's wrong with um, using reproductive health and not using the word abortion in your terminology? And why would a feminist like Hillary Clinton not use the word abortion? Well, again, it's trying to be quiet about things and um, and perhaps, you know, the idea that we could sneak it by the the Senate, if they wouldn't notice that this was about abortion. That's not going to happen. We need to be forthright about abortion. Um, I think uh, choice has often become the go to word because people don't want to say abortion. They're they're um, uncomfortable saying it and they feel that it will be antagonizing. Um, in fact, you know, the way that we won abortion rights is by naming abortion. And you can see more recently um, in the in the recent st struggle for repeal of abortion laws in Ireland, one of the first things that those campaigners did is they named their group the abortion rights campaign. And this was very hard at the time. Um, and even in 2016, it was hard for them to start a group and call it abortion rights campaign. People were were shocked by three years later, everybody was using the word, including politicians. So we just need to break through the idea that we can't say the word. If we can't say the word, how are we going to be able to defend the right?
Exactly. Uh, way back in February 2001, we had the late great attorney Vince Bugliosi on our show, the guy who prosecuted Charles Manson. And he was on to discuss his argument that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decision in Bush v. Gore was treason. During that conversation, and to be honest, I can't even remember how it came up, I asked Vince about Roe v. Wade, and he told us that he thought it was a weak decision based on privacy and not the right of women to do what they want. Not on, as you say, the freedom to have an abortion without any law being an obstacle and in your way. When we had Vince on and he said that, I got a lot of emails from people saying you shouldn't be critical of Roe v. Wade. How vulnerable does Roe v. Wade make access to and the very right to an abortion? Well, Roe basically restricts how much states can restrict abortion, right? So it it fetters states and prevents them from making it illegal the way these uh, bans in Alabama and so forth have come down. Now, um, those are all in court. Those are all going to get challenged. Um, so right now, abortion is still legal in, in all 50 states. Um, you can get one. Um, but uh, Roe was a compromise with what the women's liberation movement wanted, which was to get abortion completely out of the law. Um, you know, there is no reason to have it in the law. And it was the Supreme Court was going back to their um, their decision in Griswold versus Connecticut, which was a, a birth control decision, which said that in all states in the United States, doctors could prescribe um, birth control to their married patients. Um, so and they said that the reason was uh, was there was this privacy implied privacy um, in the Constitution. So they went back to that when they were uh, confronted with this challenge on abortion. Um, but it's not a particularly clear or ringing way to uh, to defend something that seems like such a fundamental right. And I should say that women at various points in our history have tried to get uh, get birth control laws eliminated based on, uh, you know, the uh, the anti-slavery amendment or um, the right to pursuit of happiness. There are some very fundamental ways that that um, you know the government should be uh, should be defending our rights on this stuff, and you know it's congruent with a lot of other rights that we have in the Constitution. It makes perfect sense, but um, but they just happen to be privacy. And my main thing is we should not um, you know base our political organizing on the you know the sort of jerry-rigged legal structure and talk about privacy as in, as you know this key thing that's that's for the courts um and certainly criticizing roe versus wade from a left or feminist perspective is not going to weaken the decision um what's going to weaken the decision is is a bunch of right-wing justices deciding that they can get away with uh with taking away our rights um and they, if they think they can get away with it, if we're not out in the streets, that's how it's going to happen. You write this realization led to the slogan that the personal is political, a phrase meaning that things that seem to be personal struggles, in fact, have political roots and solutions. This is the realization when women realize that others had the same shared experience of having an abortion. Perhaps nothing seemed more personal and secret than abortion. These women made abortion public and political. Is the lingering legacy of the 1960s women's liberation movement the recognition and understanding that the personal is political, which leads to the eventual realization and extrapolation that everything is political? Did the fight for abortion rights lead to politics becoming visible, visible in everything? Is that, what, is that the, ling the real lingering le legacy of the women's liberation movement? 
Well, I think the lingering legacy of the women's liberation movement is we changed a whole lot of laws where we couldn't, for example, wear uh, wear pants. Um, we were uh, uh, legally under our husband's uh, uh, bank account. We couldn't get our own credit cards. We couldn't get things in our own name. Uh, we couldn't get divorces. We, I mean, there is a lot that the women's liberation movement has left us a lot of equality in education. Um, just I could go on and on. Um, so abortion is just a piece of that. And I think uh, for us, to, we need to look at um, all of the other things that are sort of an unfinished revolution on feminism and and see how abortion is related to those. I mean, our inability to get childcare um, and, and healthcare for, for ourselves and our kids, um, you know, those those are part of this unfinished unfinished revolution that we we uh, you know in the '60s people wanted to, wanted to get that stuff and it's been another 50 years and we still haven't got it. Um, and part of the reason we're seeing this uh, you know this very intense stuff around abortion now is um, is that our birth rate has gone down because it's so darn ha- hard to have kids in the United States. Um, you know, with, with the conditions that people are facing. So, um, so we have the lowest ever birth rate that we've had. Um, and, uh, that's why I think part of the reason that we're seeing some of this, um, some of this stuff go down and we're seeing, you know, the Supreme court looks like it's going to reconsider, um, whether or not doctors have to have admitting privileges and hospitals, which is just another way to restrict the supply of abortions. So, um, you know, it's not just around religion. It's very much an economic uh, question. Are we going to have a um, a child-rearing system where the rich have to put in money for child care and health care and paid leave, or are we going to continue to be pushed, uh, pushed back and forced to have kids even when we can't afford them? That's really the question that we're facing right now. You offer several unhelpful arguments for abortion rights, and you've touched on a few already. But one that you mentioned is abortion is about individual choice. And you explain this removes abortion from the realm of political power and narrows it to an individual decision. The neoliberal idea is that everyone will take care of themselves and the problem will be solved. Why doesn't that work when it comes to the issue of abortion? Well, it goes back to what I was saying about uh, reproductive justice and the movement for reproductive justice. If you just look at at abortion as an individual choice and somebody is having trouble raising their kids, sort of the neoliberal answer is, well, you had a choice. You shouldn't have had that kid. Um, but the reproductive justice answer is we are doing needed work for the whole society when we raise our children and And we should get some compensation and help doing that. Um, And so it's not just an individual issue whether or not you have children. It's actually a society-wide issue. And we can only now see that um, as the birth rate has gone down lower and lower and it started to panic people um, about, you know, oh, gosh, are we going to be able to pay for Social Security, which turns out to be a scam. But they are trying to force the birth rate up. Um, because they're worried about uh, growth in the economy and so forth. And our answer has to be that we we are, when we want kids, we have to have good conditions to raise them in, and we have to have paid leave like every other country has. I mean, there are literally about four countries that don't have any paid maternity leave, and the U.S. is one of them. Um, 
We have to have health care that we can rely on that is there no matter what. Um, it doesn't depend on our, our job or our being married or any of these other things. It's just there because we're there and need it. Um, and then we need a child care system where child care workers are right now the lowest paid profession in the United States. Child care workers need um, need to be unionized like the public schools. They need to have uh, good working conditions and it needs to be properly funded the only way that's going to happen, it's not going to happen by forcing parents to pay more. They can't pay anymore. It's going to happen by taxing the rich. So those, those are the kind of things that we need to be looking at. Another unhelpful argument for abortion that you mentioned is abortion is a matter between a woman and her doctor. Legislatures should not intervene. You explained this assumes women have a doctor as opposed to a string of one-time encounters with various medical personnel. Is this a classist argument? Does it reveal elitism and privilege of those supporting reform and not supporting abortion law repeal? I think it does sort of have that that um, Lady Bountiful medical uh, medicalization eye uh, that that really makes people th- rather than thinking of um, you know the the constituency for. The abortion struggle is really the masses of women who want reproductive freedom. And all of these arguments about the rights of professionals to practice and whatnot are really aimed at this sort of lobbying and litigation strategy towards abortion. Um, Now, we think that the lobbying and litigation strategy towards abortion is the correct one because we've been lied to about the history of how we want abortion. So we just hear, oh, the Supreme Court gave it to us, so it must have been a smart legal strategy. But in reality, it was masses of women revolting in the streets, getting illegal abortions, doing their own abortions publicly, breaking the laws openly, um, all of these things that were happening. And they, they were also suing um, on behalf of women, not on behalf of doctors' ability to practice. Um, and so all of that uh, you know, m- made a firestorm. The other thing that we should note, and one of the reasons it's going to be harder this time around to to protect our rights, is that throughout um, throughout Eastern Europe and and the socialist bloc and every pretty much every socialist country that had a revolution made abortion legal immediately. Um, so we were in a situation in the 60s and 70s where you know this debate about what the free world versus what was the what system really represented freedom. Um, and so this people came from the free world in the United States and went behind the Iron Curtain in Poland to get an abortion for $10 um, and came back. That was extremely embarrassing to the United States. So there was some leverage there. You know, oh, we're supposedly the free world, but women are, you know, walking around on the corners in, in Washington, D.C., each with a different color scarf waiting to be picked up and blindfolded to go to their uh, you know, their underground abortion provider who, who may not even be somebody who um, was going to do a safe abortion. So, I mean, this, this whole debate around this um, was helped by the socialist world saying, absolutely, women have this right. And um, here, you know, we, we did not have it. So I think that that also needs to be kept in mind. Just a couple more questions for you, Jenny. You write, because the reform proposals helped few women, there was no mass movement to push for them. The women's liberation movement was the mass movement that was needed for a breakthrough. 
and after it arose, victories came in quick succession. In your opinion, can today's Democratic Party and its National Committee learn something from the women's liberation movement in that asking for reforms is not energizing, but demanding real change is very popular? And to you, why do, why do the conservatives, why does the right, the Republican Party, get the political value in offering transformative change? But all the Democrats think of is a winning strategy of reforms. Well, it's largely because the, the Democratic the establishment parts of the Democratic Party and their donors um, don't really want those changes, right? They don't really want a national health care system because they have a lot of insurance company donors. So, you know, it looks like wimpiness or not understanding the history, but in many cases, it's just their interests conflict with the with the big demand. Um, but it's funny, you know, I mean, they they also probably don't realize how important the movement is. And, you know, Hillary Clinton and her book, uh, uh, what happened after after the election? She she says, "Huh, I didn't realize that these things were really popular. You know, it may, maybe we should go for big big demands instead of you know a blizzard of acronyms and little dispensations to people who can qualify. You know, uh, so maybe she had an epiphany. Maybe she was just playing to her audience. But um, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that that." You know, going for the public option is not going to unite all the pe- people that need health care. Having health care for everybody, everybody in the country is what's going to unite people who need health care. And uh, and similarly on all of these other uh, all of these other issues like abortion. We only have abortion for people who have been raped or, ha- or victims of incest or have cancer. They, that leaves out most people who need abortions. It's not something they're going to rally around. This was we learned that in the 60s and we need to relearn it when we, uh, you know, we're backing down on 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 some of these things and just only talking about the hard cases. We need to talk about the normal cases where most people are. And whenever I hear the word epiphany, I remind myself that the word phony comes from it. I just love that piece of trivia. We have been speaking with writer, teacher and organizer with the feminist group National Women's Liberation, Jenny Brown, author of a new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Jenny was a leader in the fight to get the morning after pill over the counter in the U.S. and a plaintiff in the winning lawsuit. Previously, Jenny wrote or co-authored the Red Stockings book, Women's Liberation and National Health Care, Confronting the Myth of America, and authored Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight for Over Women's Work, which you can find out more about at birthstrike.home.blog. One last question for you, Jenny, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. So I was trying to find a poll, any poll online, where it would say, how what the percentage of American women was or is that supports abortion. I could not find any Pew poll that was gendered when it came to abortion. I, I mean, I didn't do that much research, so maybe I missed it, but I could not find any polls anywhere that would suggest, you know, 98% of men are against, or against abortion and 98% of women are for abortion, whatever the case was. That was the information I was trying to find. I could not find that. But... What I did find was something even, even more weird. Uh, when looking to poll numbers that were fascinating over the last 10 years, support for a woman's right to an abortion with limits has been in around the 55% range over the last 10 years. Support for abortion being legal under any circumstance has been under 25, around 
25%, while opposition to all forms of abortion for any reason whatsoever has been around 20%, the lowest of those three categories. In other words, four out of five respondents generally say they believe there should be uh, some or no limits on abortion, while another one in five is completely opposed to a a woman's right to choose. Yet in those same polls over the same last 10 years, half of respondents considered themselves pro-choice and half said they were pro-life. What explains why only one in five respondents being against abortion yet consider themselves pro-life? How, how is it that you, have, you can come across this idea of 80% of Americans either believing women should have no limits on their abortion or a few limits on their abortion, yet 50% of Americans say they're pro-life? Well, partly it's when you poll people, they want to express disapproval um, of abortion, and so they do it. And that's why polling on abortion is not as good as ref- as looking at referendum results on abortion. Um, generally, when refer- when referenda are put on the ballot in states in the United States, um, not always, but generally, uh, the pro-choice, the pro-abortion side wins. Um, and that's partly because people, you know, in the poll, they just want to say it's a bad thing, um, but they don't necessarily want to bring the law down on somebody because they understand what that means. Um, now, there's one exception, and that is with uh, with young folks uh, having to get uh, parental permission. Usually those pass. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is that there are a lot of different uh, – there are, the polls always ask, well, what about the, a case of rape? What about a case where the person has cancer? So people sort of self-sort themselves into into pro-choice or pro-life, using those, the terms that are, the media uses, um, based on how much they think it's a bad thing that people get abortions or how much they think it's a good thing that people can get abortions. Um, so I, but I think when you... When you basically look at, do people want abortion outlawed? No, absolutely not. About 75% think it should not be outlawed. So that's kind of the bottom line on polling. Um, I don't think we should spend a lot of time looking at polls. The polls were extremely close in Ireland, and yet they won by 66% um, repeal of their abortion law. So um, that you know that indicates to me that the the polls are are really kind of useless in this fight and the other thing that's useless about the polls is that when we start talking about abortion really talking to people as they did in Ireland they went door to door sometimes several times they would visit the same person who was undecided um as we do that we change minds and that's what happened in the late 60s and early 70s the women's liberation movement changed people's minds about abortion. Look, we went from a period where abortion was illegal unless you were about to die in most states to uh, you could get an abortion if you wanted one up to 23 weeks. I mean, that that change <laughs> was made by a movement talking about abortion um, and obviously organizing for it. So we don't have to go with what the polls say, we can like make our own reality on this one by getting out there and talking about abortion. Yeah, and it just reminds me that, uh, or actually you enlighten me, uh, that poll-obsessed media and politics won't ever lead to any real transformation. Jenny, I really appreciate you being on our show today. Uh, Jenny Brown is the author of the new book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle, 
now, and you can follow Jenny on Twitter at Jenny Brown LN. And Jenny, when this book comes out in a new edition, or you have any writing out whatsoever, you have an open invitation to being on our show whenever you'd like. Thank you so much. This is a fantastic book, and I really, really enjoyed our conversation today. Great. Thanks so much. I did too. All right. Take care. All right. This is Board Up Dan. That was Chuck talking to Jenny Brown in 2019 about the history of access to abortion in this country. I really liked listening to that. It was cool at the top of the interview, she talked about how in the 1860s, the professionalism of doctors as such, which was coded very male, was uh, against the female-coded midwife tradition. It was interesting to hear that as a a reason for its initial illegalization in the 1860s. Sounds like there was some Protestant Catholic sectarianism in there as well as a reason why it was initially made illegal. But the real takeaway from that interview for me was that things were already bad before last week. Roe did not go far enough in securing people's access to abortions and that this was a step backwards that we really could not... um, afford and so we got to punch back like twice as hard it's a bummer that we have to do it but i don't know what i expected because this is hell all right let's go do some questions from hell remember that this week's question from hell was what did chuck miss during his two-month absence chuck is coming back he already did yesterday's intro he's gonna be doing the show monday next week but he was gone for two months what did he miss Go to Facebook and give us your answer. Pete V says the target. Chuck missed the target. Ed F says the point with a little winky emoji. Uh, Wojciech R says Mel, the cute cat that hangs around here. Adam A says you mean aside from the soul-crushing relation of current events by independent conscientious reporters? This is some sarcasm. Fabio L. says his button. Uh, Jeff Dorchin has a response that I'm too shy to put on air. Go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and read his response. Tom G. says everybody just slaps each other now. (laughs) Laddie O. says kitty kisses. That's what Chuck's been missing. Luke H. says, the most important election of our lives. I'll read one more. Jack B. says, what didn't he miss? All right. I'll let Lindsay read the rest here. Uh, She'll be right here in the studio tomorrow, Wednesday, playing a hit from the vaults. I know that Sebastian will be in on Thursday, and he's already selected Paul Pillar. An interview with Paul Pillar talking about American exceptionalism. So that'll be good. I had a good time with you this morning for sure. I'll be back next week. And until then. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>